Funding for this podcast comes from MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software, accelerating the pace of engineering and science. Learn more at MathWorks.com. Today, let's give ourselves the gift of stepping back from the tensions and tragedies in the regular news cycle and instead talk about something that's working and working beautifully beyond expectation and expanding human knowledge past the boundaries of our imaginations. This month, NASA released yet another spectacular image caught by the James Webb Space Telescope. This one is of the Roe-Ofuchi Cloud Complex, and it's a vast field of towering, swirling columns of gases enshrouding the light of baby stars. And it's a wonder to behold. The James Webb Space Telescope, or JWST, is celebrating its first year of operational science. It's situated one million miles away from Earth and peering as far back into the universe as we ever have. By nature, we are explorers. We are frontiers people. And so the question that we often ask is, who are we? Where are we? Why are we here? How is it that it developed that life as we know it has been created here on this stony mid-sized planet revolving about a mid-sized star that we call our sun? Is there life out there in the cosmos? NASA Administrator Bill Nelson. That was his answer when asked by CBS News why humanity needs missions like JWST. Jane Rigby is NASA project scientist for the James Webb Space Telescope mission, and she says the telescope is breaking boundaries. What Webb is giving us that's new is a perspective that is sharper, that is clearer, that sees further back in time, that sees the parts of the universe that have just been invisible to us. Because if you look with your eyes or even with Hubble at this part of the sky, all you see is black. You can't see any of this. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. In April 2022, we spoke with astronomers Marsha Riki and Nicole Lewis about what went into getting the JWST a million miles from Earth, an incredible feat in its own right. Riki is a professor of astronomy at the University of Arizona. She was principal investigator for the Near Infrared Camera, or NearCam, on the JWST. Lewis is a professor of astronomy at Cornell University and served as project scientist at the Space Telescope Science Institute for the Webb program. In that April 2022 conversation, the telescope had made it to its desired orbital point and NASA was vetting JWST's instrumentation. It hadn't begun any of its scientific missions at the time, so we talked with Riki and Lewis about what they hoped to learn from this expensive, ambitious project. Well, today, we've invited them back on the one-year anniversary of JWST's science mission to see if those hopes have been fulfilled. Professor Marsha Riki, welcome back to On Point. Thank you very much for having me again. And Professor Nicole Lewis, it's a pleasure to have you back as well. Hello, and thanks for having me back. Uh, okay, so the easy first question here, and Professor Riki, I'll start with you. Has JWST met or exceeded your expectations so far? 
Oh, it has <laughs> totally exceeded my expectations. I mean, we had all these plans of how we'd work around this, that, or the other problem, and we've not had to use a one of those. The performance has been just spectacular. And Professor Lewis, same question to you. Yeah, it has definitely exceeded my expectations. When the data comes down, it is almost pristine. It makes my job easy. <laughs> <laughs> now, um, I w would love to hear both of you throughout this hour just sort of even talk with each other at times if you want. So don't don't wait for me to direct all questions individually to either of you. Um, but I, so I'm just wondering, how often in science does something like this happen. Not to say that, you know, there may be um, anomalies or quirks in the future. We, we don't know that yet. But to have such a tremendous start to a long-term, uh, highly complex mission, is this a common or rare thing in your experience? In my experience, to have something work this so far beyond its original projected performance is I can't think of another case. There have been other missions which worked very well out of the box, like the Spitzer Space Telescope, but something that has just kind of blown through all of the requirements and and just delivered the way Webb has, that is, that is really unusual. Mm -hmm. okay. Yeah, and I have to agree with Professor Ricci that... It, you know, even during my career, I was involved with Spitzer. Um, and of course, when Hubble launched and gave us our first images, there was a little bit of, you know, some issues. We have really just never seen something work beyond our expectations right out of the box. Yeah. So the issues from Hubble, just to remind folks, were the problems with its ability to focus, right? Right. But Hubble was close, close enough to Earth that we could send astronauts up to fix it, which is not an option with JWST being a million miles away. Exactly. Yeah. And so I was, honestly, the fact that it's worked so brilliantly is just a, a marvel of science and engineering, I have to say. Um, I I want to know from both of you, and actually, um, Professor Riki, let's just start with you for a second, because JWST is doing a lot, right? It's um, peering very, very deep, deeply back into the origins of the universe, which um, distant galaxies would be sort of your, roughly your realm of expertise. And Prof Professor Lewis, you're looking at exoplanet uh, science. So uh, Professor Riki, is there a particular image um, from any one of the um, sort of distant galaxies experiments that you find particularly arresting or indicative of the telescope's success so far? Oh, the, the deep survey that my team and our collaborators from NIRSPEC have, have done with some images that visually, yeah, they don't look like much. But as soon as you analyze the light from these objects, you realize that you're seeing almost all the way back to the Big Bang. You're seeing only stuff as they, as they were 320 years 320 million years after the Big Bang. And so essentially right out of the box, we've come close to achieving one of the key goals of the mission, one of the ways we, we persuaded people to spend $10 billion. And so the, the image itself, when you look at it from oh, a distance of a couple feet on a computer screen, doesn't look that much different from 
a Spitzer image, but when you bore in and you actually look at the details, you go, oh my gosh, we've done it. <laughs> okay, so this is the Advanced Deep uh, Extra Galactic Survey you're talking about? Yes, which we've dubbed jades as a way to refer to it. <laughs> okay, so I'm looking at a at a, an image of it available online. And by the way, folks, a lot of the uh, JWST images that uh, we're going to be talking about today are available. There's links to them on our website, which is onpointradio.org. So, Professor Riki, though, I'm looking at uh, this Jade's image, and you can zoom in on it, which is kind of amazing. I, I think I've heard you say previously that there were, are there 45,000 galaxies in this one set of images? That's right. And, you know, sometimes people um, ask me, well, why haven't you released a summary of all the properties of all the galaxies in your field? And <laughs> I have to say, ah, when you got 45,000 of them, it takes you a little while. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's remarkable. So, so when you say this is 325 million years after the Big Bang, that is early, 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 given that are we, what are we, what, uh, uh, or how far back are we saying the Big Bang is going now? Because I think this is a number that I haven't been able to keep track of. 13 billion or something like that? Yeah, 13.7 billion years ago is when the Big Bang happened. And so we've, we're have we seeing light that's been traveling t toward us for longer than the Earth has existed. Much longer. Much longer than the Earth has much existed. Long. Okay, so I'm seeing this like amazing field of you know, crowded with galaxies of all shapes and sizes, spirals, I guess those are the ones I recognize the most. They're different colors. Is that, are these false color images or are they, why are they different colors? Uh, it is a false color image. Um, the default way that the image comes up that you're looking at assigns um, red, green, blue to three different near cam filters and so that's how you get the colors. So the things that appear red are, in fact, brighter at the longest of the near-cam wavelengths, and the things that look blue are bluer. And so, so of course, it, your eye can't see infrared, so you wouldn't see any of these colors. But what we've done is tried to categorize the objects according to the properties of the light that they're emitting. Okay. So... Can you, I mean, I know you, you, you could just spend years and years of your career uh, analyzing everything that this one data set is providing, but is there something in particular here that you could point out that you find especially lovely or, or surprising when you, when you started uh, examining it? I think um, there were two things that, that have been surprises. Well, at least two. <laughs> just one is the sheer number of relatively you know, very small, dim objects that when you analyze it, they're in this realm of 300 to 500 million years after the Big Bang. And there are more, many more of those than our models predicted. And the other thing is that as you, you've noticed when you scroll around, you can see shapes and some of the galaxies are quite red in color, which suggests that they've got a lot of um, dust in them, just like our own Milky Way has. In fact, that's partly what makes that recently released Ro Ufiyuki picture so pretty, is that there's 
dusts and gas swirling around, that there are more ga- <clears throat> more galaxies with a lot of dust than we might have predicted. And so we're still still trying to digest what this all means. Okay. Well, and the dust is important because it helps build uh, other things in, in the universe as well. So, okay, Professor Marshariki, we're going to come back to uh, what happened at the dawn of the universe. And Professor Lewis, I definitely want to hear from you about what you're seeing regarding exoplanets out there. Thanks to our one million mile away eye on the universal sky, the James W. The, sorry, the James Webb Space Telescope, which is celebrating its first year of science. We'll be back. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty, and Marsha Riki is with us today. She's a professor of astronomy at the University of Arizona. And Nicole Lewis joins us as well. She's associate professor of astronomy at Cornell University. And they have come back together on On Point a year after we first invited them on. And we're talking about the James Webb Space Telescope and celebrating its first year of uh, astronomical and cosmological observation. Uh, Professor Lewis, so we heard uh, Professor Riki talk a little bit about some of um, the more remarkable images that she's analyzing now regarding the beginnings of the universe. You're an expert in exoplanets. Um, Can you talk about one or two that Webb has looked at and what you found? Yeah. Um, and, and to echo sort of what Professor Riki was saying was that when we get these images down, sometimes, you know, they aren't as you know beautiful as the images you'll find online, but they hold so much rich information. Uh, and that's particularly true for a lot of our exoplanet uh, images. Uh, often we just see blobs, <laughs> for lack of a better term. <laughs> uh, but when we, we sort of smear the light out from those blobs into what we call spectra, we're able to tell uh, a huge amount about those uh, objects that are you know, light years away from us. Uh, and, you know, one of the objects that we looked at early on in uh, JWST's science operations was the sort of, I would call a warm uh, Jupiter called WASP-39b. Um, and when looking at that planet, we were able to actually detect carbon dioxide for the first time in that planet's atmosphere using JWST and to also see hints of really interesting chemistry happening with sulfur. And why were those two things very interesting? 
Yeah. So if you look around our own solar system, and that's, you know, I'm trained as a planetary scientist, so I always start in the solar system. And of course, JWST has given us beautiful images of solar system planets, um, which we can talk about more. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when we look around in the solar system, many of the atmospheres of the planets, you know, us and Venus, Mars in particular, have carbon dioxide as a key species in the atmosphere. And it's a key component of understanding um, how those planets formed and evolved. And, you know, looking farther into the future at smaller rocky worlds, their potential to host life. Um, and sulfur is also a key species that we see. Um, I think one of the the places we see it most in the solar system is Jupiter's moon Io, which is basically spewing sulfur. Um, and that creates all sorts of complex chemical interactions, which again, uh, can be interesting in terms of thinking about uh, the you know habitability and the formation of life on planets beyond our solar system. So help me uh, remember my exoplanet history here, since it's also such a new field. Have, have there been other planets previously, uh, or exoplanets previously studied, where uh, carbon dioxide and sulfur were found in their atmospheres outside of the solar system? Uh, no, we have not had firm detections without the infrared capabilities of JWST. Um I'll come back to the Spitzer Space Telescope, which I started my career on and love dearly. We had hints that we might see something like that, but we didn't have what we call the resolution to be able to determine exactly uh, which species were contributing to the light that we saw. Oh, so this is truly a first then? It is truly a first. Okay. And so what what new questions then pop into your mind with it, with the ability to confirm that, okay, there's planetary activity out there where you have recognizable signatures of CO2 and sulfur in the atmosphere? Yeah, it's particularly interesting for this because this is a gas giant. Um, and actually, we didn't really think that there should be a lot of carbon dioxide in these gas giant atmospheres. And so it probably means that they formed um, in a very sort of different location from our own gas giant planets in, in our solar system. Um, and so that's really telling us a lot about, you know, where do planets form in, around other stars? Does they, do they form in systems that look a lot like our own solar system? Or are they really forming in a very different fashion, um, which could open up the idea of, you know, could there other, be other systems that look like ours or are we really quite unique? Yeah. Okay. So I've got to ask you, I mean... I know that JWST is not the uh, the project in which, I mean, at least for now, that uh, scientists are going to try and point it towards planets so that it might we might think could harbor the the or it could be home to not if not life then circumstances that would pro- maybe ar- uh, help life that we recognize arrive. Okay, but <laughs> putting JWST aside for just one second. I mean, the universe is so vast. I I think we've confirmed that there are many, 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 many planets out there. Uh, so many that there's got to be some that have the same Goldilocks zone properties that Earth does. So do you think that um, eventually one day in a future mission, we will be looking at planets that could be habitable? <laughs> Yes, most certainly. I mean, we've confirmed thousands of exoplanets and yeah. thousands and millions more currently uh, exist in our solar system, most definitely. And uh, JWST is playing an important role in the whole idea of 
the search for life, um, we are looking at Earth-sized planets that are around small stars, what we call M-dwarfs, cool stars that are not like our sun. And, and many of them are, in fact, in what would be considered the Goldilocks zones of those systems. And so we're trying to understand if those planets could have properties that could support life or if, you know, really we can only get ideal conditions for life around more sun-like stars, which will be uh, definitely looked at with future missions like the Habitable Worlds Observatory. Okay, so we'll come back and talk about that in in a minute here. But Professor Riki, I appreciate uh, your patience in listening to uh, to what Professor Lewis had to say about initial exoplanet observations. But but tell me more about what uh, Webb is revealing about that you know that earliest earliest uh, chapters in the universe's history. I will do that in one second. I wanted to add okay. one thing to what Nicole has been saying that. Webb was designed and and sold initially on the basis of of searching for the most distant galaxies. And I remember people making the argument that once you build an observatory to do something that difficult, it'll be useful for many other things. Because when the mission was being designed, there were far fewer exoplanets known. And... In fact, there were no requirements placed on the mission to be able to do the kind of work that Nicole is doing, but it shows that a well-designed, well-engineered um, project can do many things and that it, we don't, we're not just making it up when we say, okay, we're going after the most distant galaxies, but trust us, it'll be good for other things. And I think we're, we're seeing, that, <laughs> seeing that notion bear fruit. So back to your, your main question. As we go through this um, enormous set of imaging, and now we're getting spectra as well of these very distant galaxies, some of the things that we want to probe actually connect back to um, what's what we see nearby and, and planets and so on. And we're trying to trace out how we went from the Big Bang, which was basically left us with hydrogen and helium and a, a tiny little bit of lithium and a couple other light elements, but no carbon or oxygen or nitrogen. And we're going, we're already seeing some traces that in the early universe, these critical elements for life are getting manufactured in stars more quickly than we might have predicted. And so, again, another very important mystery to unravel is how, how the chemical, what we might call the chemical evolution of the universe proceeded, which is obviously very important for our understanding life and where else it might be. Mm, okay. You know, I'm recalling that another really interesting thing that both of you shared with us when we had you back on in April 2022 was this novel way in which um, telescope time was being allotted on JWST, right? That you... that. NASA and the ESA had actually come up, or and the Canadian Space Agency had come up with this system where um, there would essentially be a, sort of almost a, a blind selection of the the most compelling um, proposed experiments, and that meant that it opened up the possibility for a lot of younger researchers to perhaps gain access to the telescope. Am I remembering that correctly, Professor Lewis? 
Yeah, I think we discussed that towards the end of our conversation back yeah. in April. Um, but this is the, the what we call the dual anonymous uh, proposal review process, which was actually uh, first initiated on the Hubble Space Telescope. And it was so successful that it seemed obvious that to carry it over for JWST. Um, and it has certainly borne fruit in, in looking at the diversity of um, what we call principal investigators selected on uh, observations for cycle one and now cycle two. Okay, so we actually reached out to uh, one of those uh, young researchers who had an experiment selected uh, for cycle one. Her name is Lisa Dang. She's a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Montreal, and she studies exoplanets and their atmospheres. And with a team of other researchers, she submitted uh, a project proposal in November 2020. She hoped to study the lava planet k 2141 in hopes uh, of learning more about its makeup that might tell us more about the interior of our own planet. And Lisa was very excited to learn that her project had been chosen for the first year or cycle one. Uh, and here's what she told us. For me, it was kind of the first time that I felt like a real astronomer, like a real adult astronomer, uh, just because I was able to get time on this like big telescope. One of the things that strikes me the most is a lot of the projects that was I was expecting to see approved were probably approved. And I think there's a lot of usually competing teams that are applying for the same uh, target, for example. But it's nice to see that because there's less emphasis that was put on the institutions of the people on the team and the name of the people on the team, the proposals were evaluated for their merit and how well they were presented rather than how good uh, and competent of the team they, they had. Two outcomes from this is that a lot more young researchers were able to get uh, time uh, on this first cycle, but also a lot of institutions that are not necessarily like the top tiers institutions were able to get time as well. Lisa has received her data from JWST and her team is currently processing the numbers and she doesn't yet have, of course, the final analysis. They're still working on it, but she told us she thinks they'll be able to reveal whether that planet that they're looking at has an atmosphere or whether it's been blown away by the heat of the star it orbits. So looking forward to Lisa Deng's discoveries. Uh, Professor Lewis, let me ask you, especially in um, the field of of exoplanet astronomy, it seems like it's it's one that's that's new enough that there haven't been, let's say, the established um, uh, personalities or egos or lab politics that might um, emerge in other more uh, like older fields of 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 science. Is that is that true? I, I think that's a fair statement, and I, I'd like to hear Marcia's You're opinion laughing. about it. <laughs> I, 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 I am because I, I think within science, you know, scientists have opinions. We we are opinionated people by nature, and so I, I think saying that we're a field without any opinions or egos is is probably not fair. But I, I will say we are still a relatively young field and one that's still trying to find itself, um, and a field that has grown very very rapidly. Which means you know the majority of people that I work with these days. Um, our early career. And so um, we're trying to find ways to, to build collaborations such that we can, can focus on community rather than competition. And I think one of the best examples of that was the early release science program um, for both the transiting exoplanet community and the direct imaging uh, community, which brought together hundreds of scientists and managed to get them to work together on a single project. 
Okay. Well, if I may, uh, when you spoke with Hillary, our producer for this show, I think you said that uh, it, that that fields that are a little less interdisciplinary or <laughs> right. or more that produce more Nobel worthy material, you got a lot more personalities <laughs> there, right? Yeah, that is that is a true statement. I think um, you know. If you think about a Nobel Prize and people who are aiming for a Nobel Prize, they certainly have a, a, a certain, um, shall we say, level of ego. Um, you know, I, came, again, came into this as a planetary scientist and exoplanets is a place where you have this uh, sort of crossover between planetary science, astronomy, chemistry, geology, a whole bunch of different fields. And most of us come into it with with no eye on a Nobel Prize in the future. <laughs> For now, but uh, I mean, I'm just kidding you. Uh, I, I mean, I hope that the pursuit of pure science is always the first, you know, the first goal. But you know, you, um, I think you said that when you started your career, there were, you know, I don't know, less than a hundred um, established exoplanetary scientists. But now, with the ability to gain so much more data, so much, so many more novel observations, there are many more people uh, in the field, thousands even. Yeah. I, when I started uh, in my graduate school career, I actually started in solar system research looking at Mars, in fact. I mean, it, it's just that there weren't exoplanet research projects to be had. And so mm -hmm. I was really part of the first wave of um, early career scientists coming through. And now, you know, it's a very popular uh, idea as people apply for, for graduate school to think about studying exoplanets, just given the sheer amount of information that exists now. Okay. So, Professor Riki, I'd love to hear your thoughts on then what JWST um, as, as a tool, as an instrument, if and how it might have an impact on, you know, who does, who does ast astronomical as science or, or opening the doors to, uh, to more people in the field. Do you think that there's a connection there? I think there is a connection there because if you look at <clears throat> the history of the web project, when I first joined the teams trying to kind of sketch out what the mission would look like back, this was in the sort of 1998 era, roughly. I was one of the few women participating in the project, and all of the technical people to speak of were men. By the time we got to commissioning, there were many women playing leadership roles on the engineering side. Um, if you looked at the science working group and the, the leaders of instrument teams, several of the teams were led by women. And there's also been um, quite a contingent of people, and this is partly helped by teaming with both Canada and the European space agencies. People who speak a range of languages, um, I think Webb has done a quite good job at reaching out to the Spanish-speaking community. And so the whole mixture of people has changed over the 25 years I've been associated with the mission. And I think it's partly because Webb just kind of broke all kinds of barriers, so to speak. It, it's a different way to build a telescope. Um, we've tried to do many things in a... Uh, more diverse, equitable ways, so to speak, um, try to encourage a broad range of different kinds of science. And so I think the mission will have several legacies um, for the astronomical community. Obviously, this, the scientific one being the easiest to see, but many in the societal side as well. Mm. Well, today, 
You're hearing from Professor Marsha Riki and Professor Nicole Lewis. They're two astronomers who joined us first back in April of 2022 to talk about the James Webb Telescope, and they've come back today after the Webb's first year of scientific discoveries to tell us what they've found so far and what could come next. So we'll have a lot more when we come back. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. You're back with On Point. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. The James Webb Space Telescope isn't just a telescope. It is a time machine. When the JWST sees light from a galaxy that's 13 billion light years away, it means that light has traveled for 13 billion years before it touched the telescope's sensors, which means that light is 13 billion years old. It is literally the light of the incomprehensibly distant past. I don't think that we're supposed to be able to comprehend what that time scale means. And I don't really think we're supposed to be able to comprehend how big our infinite universe is either. Science writer Joelle Renstrom. I don't know who really can wrap their head around the fact that we can see into the past. There's something amazing in the fact that we can know something in an intellectual way, but not really be able to know what it means because it's so big. And that that just reminds us that we're human. If we walk away from it thinking, wow, we are so small, then I, I don't know, how much more can we comprehend than that? We are a species whose entire history of existence amounts to a minuscule fraction of the blink of an eye in cosmic time. Knowing this is what gives cosmology the power to make the human soul yearn toward poetry, something no one knew better than legendary astronomer Carl Sagan. The surface of the Earth is the shore of the cosmic ocean. On this shore, we've learned most of what we know. Recently, we've waded a little way out, maybe ankle deep, and the water seems inviting. Some part of our being knows this is where we came from. We long to return. And we can, because the cosmos is also within us. We're made of star stuff. We are a way for the cosmos to know itself. When he talks about the universe knowing itself, I think he's talking about us as representatives of the universe. 
And as we learn about the universe, it is like the universe learning about itself. So exploring the universe is also self-exploration. So over the dying embers of the campfire, people watch the stars. Another one of his quotes that I, that I love is that he talks about science, especially space science, being a profound source of spirituality. As distinct from religion, that was important to him. Spirituality being a sense of awe, something that um, brings you back to the essence of breath and life. And they did it, I imagine, for many reasons. One, it is just dazzling. And uh, we today living in polluted, under polluted skies and in cities with light pollution, have mainly forgotten how gorgeous the night sky can be. It is not only an aesthetic experience, but it elicits unbidden feelings of reverence and awe. Carl Sagan died in 1996. Undoubtedly, he would have celebrated the triumphs of the James Webb Space Telescope were he alive today. But I believe he'd also challenge us to think about how to look at the images returned by the JWST so that we better understand ourselves as human beings. Sagan did exactly that with the Voyager 1 spacecraft. Launched in 1977, Voyager 1 is the first man-made machine to leave the solar system. It's now on its 46th year traveling in interstellar space. In 1990, as Voyager 1 neared the solar system's outer edges, Sagan asked that it turn back and take one last picture of Earth. The image it returned at first seems like an ocean of black emptiness, streaked by dim shafts of light. Look closer, though, and you see a pale pixel. That pixel is the Earth. Or as Sagan put it, nothing more than a moat of dust suspended in a sunbeam. The Earth is a very small stage in a vast cosmic arena. Our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. It has been said that astronomy is a humbling and character-building experience. There is perhaps no better demonstration of the folly of human conceits than this distant image of our tiny world. To me, it underscores our responsibility to deal more kindly with one another and to preserve and cherish the pale blue dot, the only home we've ever known. A short recording of Carl Sagan's The Pale Blue Dot from the Library of Congress. You also heard an excerpt from a 1994 lecture at Cornell University. And of course, a moment from the 1980 13-part PBS series, Cosmos. Professor Riki, 
Do you find astronomy both uh, character building and humbling at the same time? I suppose so, because I, when I think back to when I was a graduate student starting out getting interested in infrared astronomy, it was you know exciting to do a new kind of astronomy, but mostly what we were detecting were relatively nearby stars that had gone through their lifetimes and were ejecting their outer layers and becoming what we call red giants and carbon stars and so on that were bright in infrared. And to think that now I've helped build a camera that can see the light from the first galaxies to form, it's like, wow, what have I done? I hope I've done a good thing, but it's certainly been a great trip. <laughs> Well, uh, Professor Lewis, you know, I I couldn't help but wonder if you know that that um, call that Sagan makes about understanding ourselves better by exploring the most unknown aspects of the universe to us. Do you think JWST also answers that call? Does it help us understand ourselves better? Oh, absolutely. I, you know, part of the JWST mission is to sort of put ourselves in context. Again, answering those those sort of big existential que- questions of like, how did we get here, and are we alone? Um, and and so, you know, when we look at all of the beautiful images from JWST and the data that we've been digesting, I, I'm just continually amazed, and it does think, you know, allow me to think more about why am I here and what am I doing, um, and in some ways, just to get excited about that journey. Mm. Well, can you tell me more about um, the reactions that you feel when you're seeing, uh, if not the the sort of really charismatic pictures, because you said the for exoplanet, <laughs> it's kind of like a fuzzy dot, but the, the spectra that you're looking at, right? Mm-hmm. Like, it, do you just sort of like look at what's c- uh, coming across your screen and occasionally gasp or you think like, I, I didn't expect to see that? Yeah, I mean, when we get data down and then we process them enough to be able to look at the the spectra, as we call them, um, we are just amazed. And we we actually sit around as a group, um, you know, the people that I, I tend to do research with, and we sit and we ask ourselves, what do we think all those bumps and wiggles are? It's kind of like a, a game or like if you're shaking the box at Christmas, like what's inside? Um, and so it, that's been exciting. It's been sort of the best part of this first year of science for me. Mm. Well, Professor Riki, let me turn back to you because, you know, I asked you about JWST as a telescope, but I wonder what your thoughts are about um, how it might expand our own knowledge about our place in the cosmos. Oh, I mean, that, as Nicole has mentioned, that is one of the key reasons for building this kind of a telescope. And We've gotten to the point where, you know, one of the things we always say as astronomers is that we're going to study how galaxies changed over time so that we can understand how the Milky Way came to be. And in the early days, that sounded like, well, that sounds like a grand plan, but how in detail are you going to do that? Well, now we actually can see how galaxies are changing as we look further and further back in time. So we go from our own kind of local neighborhood and go back in steps. And we are being able to put together a picture 
that shows when combined with our knowledge of the Milky Way itself that some of our old ideas of how the Milky Way might have formed were quite wrong. It, it did partly collapse out of some big cloud, but it also came together by merging with other bits, other galaxies nearby. And we're seeing now evidence that even at the very earliest times, galaxies started to merge. And when we couple that with being able to take the spectra and see what the chemical composition of the stars are, we really can begin to put together a picture of how our, our local neighborhood has come to be. And maybe that will also give us some clues about where it might go. And if, God forbid, we have to leave this earth, where, where how are we going to figure out the best other place to go? And so I think we're, we're getting quite a picture. And I find it just astounding that as a single human being, I can look at 13 billion years of history by studying these little dots of light. Mm. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, you got me thinking about just yesterday, we did a show um, about the massive heat wave that's, uh, you know, in blanketing the, the southern United States. Um, and, Tell me uh, about it here and here. I know, I was going to say, I was going to say, are you on day 20 now of record-breaking heat? Um, and the fact that we're just going to have to keep adapting in order to live with the changes we are um, we are in, you know, making on our own planet. And it got me back to that. I spent all morning once again looking at that pale blue dot image because it really grabs your heart and you think that little pixel is all we have. I, I wonder as you're, as you're doing your research, I mean, maybe when you're in the moment and you're, you're trying to understand data, this doesn't happen. But when, you have, when either of you have a chance to step back, does it make you reflect back on, well, Maybe one day we we might find another habitable planet, but it won't be in our lifetimes. It won't be in our children's or grandchildren's lifetimes. That this is all we've got right now. I mean, Professor Lewis, does that ever sort of does that ever happen to you? Yeah, certainly. I think um, you know we might actually be able to to detect a planet within my lifetime is my hope that could in fact harbor life or maybe has signatures of life. But the reality is, is there's no way within my lifetime or even my children's lifetime that we're going to be able to get there. Um, and so that's really, there is, there is no, you know, rescue ship. <laughs> this is the only ship that we have. And, and certainly uh, that does make me think about how best to be a steward of the planet that we have um, for future generations. Mm. Professor Riki, do you have a thought about that? Um, I think I'm more optimistic than Nicole. Maybe this is optimism <laughs> based on lack of knowledge, but I think we might find uh, an exoplanet with habitable characteristics maybe uh, in the next 10 years or so, certainly within um, the Webb telescope's lifetime. But I do have to agree with her that getting somewhere else is – that's – that's beyond our means at the moment. But it it does just reinforce how precious our planet is. And it really makes me mad when people don't care about what's going on around them. 
Mm, yeah. Well, you have to promise me, both of you have to promise me, if um, in our lifetimes we do find an exoplanet that is habitable or has signs of life, you will come back on this show and we'll talk about it. Um, in the last few minutes that we have, though, I'm wondering, um, there's just been a massive treasure trove in in Webb's first year. So I imagine that Already in both of your minds, there are so many more next questions that you may want to ask or next areas that you want to further explore, or even questions about the questions generated from these first data sets. So, uh, Professor Lewis, I mean, where is your mind springing to next in terms of what you want to study? Yes. Well, I've always been a big fan of studying weather on exoplanets. That's one of my favorite areas. And so I'm really looking forward to getting uh, observations that are more detailed and deeper that allow us to understand sort of what the climate's like on other planets, which is a key part of understanding whether or not they'd be able to support life. Mm. And Professor Riki, same question to you. Um, I will second Nicole's idea of studying weather on exoplanets, and I wonder if we can learn anything about our own climate and weather by studying situations on, on exoplanets. But, of course, what what I do, um, I, we're already realizing that what we're learning from these early galaxies is that some of the details of how stars form and come to be are not quite the same in the early universe as we thought they'd be. And this may lead us to a better model of how stars form and therefore how our own sun and local neighborhood have come to be. Mm -hmm. Mm. Well, uh, I can't thank both of you enough for coming back on the show. It's been a true pleasure. Professor Marsha Riki, Professor of Astronomy at the University of Arizona and Principal Investigator for the Near Infrared Camera or NIRCAM on the JWST. Thank you so much, Professor Riki. You're very, very welcome. And Nicole Lewis, Associate Professor of Astronomy at Cornell University, involved with dozens of observational campaigns with the Spitzer, the Hubble, and now the JWST Space Telescopes. Professor Lewis, can't thank you enough as well. Great to be here. Thank you. Well... I think it seems quite apropos that after talking about the vastness of the cosmos today, we're going to talk about the vastness of the brain in, in the interior cosmos in our brains and talk about what happens when we have a spiritual experience. What's going on in your brain? So we want to hear from you. If you've had an experience before or, or a profound realization, what did it feel like? Where were you? What made it different? Give us a call at 617-353-0683 for a future show. This is On Point.